Amen. Amen. Kids worship. Kids worship. You guys can take off. All right. Okay. Man, it's good to see everybody today. Um, hope you brought your Bible, your app. Let's get it ready. Amen. Okay, let's jump in the Word today. I have a feeling that we really need to hear some good news from God. All right? And the only reason why there's good news is because there's also, guess what? Bad news. And there's plenty of bad news all around us in our world. But the worst news of all is that we're all sinners. We're, we're plagued by it. We're cursed by it. That we're sinners by, we find out when we get into Scripture, we're sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature, and we're also sinners by choice. Every one of us have sinned. And so I'm glad for good news to override the bad news that there is life, there's hope. That's what the gospel is all about. So find 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to talk about loving God. Um, this is the whole battle between relationship versus religion, between just us trying to do things to try to make us feel better about ourselves and to make us think that somehow we're going to earn our way into the hereafter. And some people don't even know what they're hereafter. But, uh, but anyway, what we got is we've got the word of God, which is a solid foundation of what we can, we can build our life. We can build our eternity. Um, so, uh, Paul in this chapter can I just say, I'm going to jump right here, okay? You ready? You ready? I mean, the quickest way to get done is to get started, okay? Good, good. So uh, the, the, this chapter is so powerful. Of course, you realize that the original chapter and verse breaks weren't part of it. He wrote, and there were probably, you know, just paragraphs and of thought and things like that. Later on, people decided that, you know, as a few centuries went by, it would help us to be able to divide it up into chapters and verses so we could pull out passages. That's why it's so much easier today to say uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, than say, find, open your scroll and roll it all the way down to Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians. And then I want you to count about, you know, 15, 16 paragraphs and, and then count down so many sentences and let's start reading there. See, that would be kind of complicated, so I'm glad. But you have to understand that just in what we would call chapter 5, I mean, he's already covered a lot of stuff. I mean, he's talked about, he's talked about heaven. He talked about in the previous chapter, he just finished talking about how the life has suffering and the outer person is withering away, right? Amen? Some of you is like, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to learn that. Uh, and the whole world is, is withering away. You know, everything's under the curse of sin. Our flesh is cursed. This world, this earth was cursed by sin. Go back to Genesis. You find that. Um, but, uh, you know, and I found out this week because the, uh, the funeral that I helped with yesterday was all outdoor. And I'm finding out. I mean, we, we've been talking about, you know, they still talk about global warming, climate change and greenhouse effect. But have we forgot about the ozone? We I mean, hear nobody talking about ozone anymore. I think they need to check the ozone because I think something's happened to the ozone because all of a sudden it seems like when I'm outside very much without a hat on, I'm burning on top of my head for some reason. It's got to be the ozone. But anyway, so I got a little bit of that. But this whole world is in, you know, a struggle. And he said, you know, he reminds us in the end of chapter four that even though the outer person, the physical person is perishing, that inside we can be renewed every day, right? And that this suffering that we're going through, it, it, you know, it doesn't even compare to that weight of glory that he's working in us 
forever, the eternal weight of glory, he says. It, it's beyond all comparison. So then he mentions, you know, the new body we're going to have in chapter 5. He talks about, he talks about uh, heaven. He talks about uh, even the fact that the Holy Spirit in our life is like given to us as a guarantee. It's, it's the same word that's used for like guarantee money. Whenever uh, there's more, you're gonna, you know, there's more to come. Uh, when you would have a, a loan, you would have earnest money. It's the same word that's translated that way. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit in your life, once you're saved, is is like God's guarantee, His earnest that there's more to come, and He's good for it. We're on a journey here, and and so that's encouraging to Paul. And so he said, "What I'm," he said, "to be at home in the body is, is is you know where I am now." But he said, "to be absent from the body," he said, "is to be present with Christ." And he said, "I keep that in mind." And he said, and he reminds us we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word judgment there is the Greek word bema. It's not like the great white throne judgment. This is more like a word that's used to describe as uh, they had a platform where after the Greek games, I have to think Paul really liked athletics because he uses these kind of analogies a lot. That they would gather there in front of the bema seat and they would hand out the rewards because he reminds us that we're all going to appear before Christ to answer uh, for the things that we did while we were in the flesh, both good and bad. So he's spoken about all that and all these are great motivations to keep living for God and keep serving God, right? For ministry. Are you with me? I got to have some feedback today. You got to keep me going on this or I'll, I'll over talk it. That's what I'll do. I'll over talk it. So please, yeah. So, uh, but those are great and excellent motives for wholehearted service to God. But in verse 14, he tells us the main motive. Are you ready? Let's read verse 14 and 15. It says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've com concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you understand what he's saying? That the love of Christ is what controls us. So Paul tells us that the primary motive for what we do, the greatest motive for serving God, the greatest motive motive for wanting to do what is right is the love of God. That's what compels us. That's what controls us. And uh, we're going to look at that word and what it means. It's just so powerful right here. It's the greatest news that you could ever hear is that God loves you. Now, a lot of people look at their lives and they don't see any evidence of it because life's been difficult. It's been, been tragic. But when you understand that in the midst of being sinful people in a sin-cursed world, that God loves us. And the only reason it's like this is because he created us with a free will. Because relationship has to be about choice. Otherwise, we would be like the animals and just operate by being programmed, by instinct. It wouldn't be a relationship like we have now. Uh, we, we, we weren't created to be puppets or robots. But because of giving us that free will, we chose sin. We chose ourselves over him. And it's the relationship. And you remember, a, a perfect God uh, can only have fellowship with perfect people or otherwise he wouldn't be perfect. So God had this plan all along. And it unfolds through the pages of scripture to redeem us and buy us back from that sin. And to, since we don't have any perfection of our own, that he takes our sin and pays for it. And then he offers us his perfection through Christ. 
And he says, this is what he's talking about. So he says that the love of Christ is what compels us, what controls us. And then he says, here's, here's the way I think. Isn't why I concluded in this verse that one died for all, that Christ died for all of us. And see, in the Old Testament, all those sacrifices, you know, they should have known that there's the deliverer coming, that all these sacrifices had to be repeated. They never did away with sin. It was just their act of faith and obedience in a system that God had set up right then. They acknowledged that they were a sinner, wages sin is death, and they did what God said because they trusted him. But ultimately, Christ died. So now, once for all, one time, he dies on the cross, that he died uh, for all. And if you've trusted in him, now this is only, I mean, he died potentially for everyone, but it's only realized in those that trust him because he says, then if you have, you've died. And then he goes on to say then that those who live, but now wait a minute, uh, I'm actually, I think, still breathing. I mean, pinch me, ouch, that hurts, right? So if I've died, what does this mean? But he says, then those who live might live for him. So this is illustrated in our baptism as we, as we identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I'm identified with his death. So I died to self, right? I died to me. I died to sin. But I, I didn't just get my sins forgiven when I got saved. I got new life. I got resurrected on the inside, right? I live. He not only died, he rose. So I died with him. I'm identified with his death, but I'm also identified with that new resurrection, glorious, powerful life, transforming life is at work in me. So that's what he's saying. And all of this comes about because of what? His great love. Amazing grace. Man, you could not have picked a better song to bring us into time to focus on this today. So this is the thing. So now I have to ask myself, does my life, this is the greatest motive, does my life reflect this, that this is my greatest, or is it duty? I mean, do my habits, do my choices reflect love for the Lord? Can people see that? I don't have to just go out there and say, no, I love the Lord, and I want to tell you, you know, can people just watch my life and know that I love the Lord? Okay, enough about me. What about you? Huh? <laughs> Some of you are like, well, maybe. You know, I'm saying that. Really think about ourselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, does life or does life seem to make no sense? Do we have no joy, no peace, no victory? I mean, do we force ourselves? Absolutely. Force ourselves to come to worship which obviously a lot of people didn't do today. But anyway, do we force ourselves to come to worship just only out of a sense of obligation to God uh, to perform some duty to somehow pacify God? Uh, Or do you picture God as some white-haired grandfather up there who cares about you but really doesn't understand you? Do you picture him that way? Uh, It might be you if you don't really know God and if you're only motivated by uh, by duty. Uh, But the only thing that glorifies God to the highest degree is to be motivated by love. That's the highest thing. Um, So we are on a journey in life, you and I. We are journeying through life toward knowing and responding to him in love and obedience. As I grow as a Christian in the time that I have left on earth, I'm growing in knowing him and responding to him in love and obedience. And I want to cheer myself on in this, and I want to cheer you on in this as well today. Um, So I have to ask, why am I here today? Why are you here today? Well, 
I hope that there's a sense of obligation and things like that. Like I said earlier, I said, you know, I thought, man, this is one of those days I might just join us online. But no, I, I got to be here, okay? I got to be here. You guys don't. Uh, so, uh, but well, why am I here? Is it just because you expect me to be here? Or is it out of my relationship with the Lord and my love for God and I'm passionate about him and my relationship? I'm passionate to serve him. See, that's, that's why, that, that's what's, that's what's got to come out. Um, but um, if we make an honest commitment to know him, if we make an honest commitment to receive his love and to love him back, I want to tell you something. He's going to honor it. He's going to honor it. Paul says the love of Christ controls him here. Now, I said I'd mention that word again. Uh, some translations say compels. Uh, the word is kind of, you know, sometimes... This was written in Koine Greek. Sometimes it's really hard to take a word from one language and to just fit it into one word in another language. It's really sometimes kind of hard, hard to uh, translate that way. That's why some different translations handle it differently. Okay, that's the reason why. But the word literally means, it means to hold together, to put pressure on, to impel or urge. And so he's saying, it's the word of God that, that, that holds me together. It's the word of God. I mean, it's the love of Christ that, that holds me together. It's the love of Christ that, that motivates me, that presses me, that controls me, that compels me. It's my motivation is what he's saying. It's my motivation. Uh, that's why in the old King James translates it, the word of or the love of Christ constrains me. It's kind of like, well, that seems like bondage. No, it's talking about holds together. And, and for some reason, they chose that word. So you could say it's, in fact, the old King James actually translates the very same Greek word in Acts 18.5. I'm just trying to open up our understanding to the words that are inspired that come to us and how we apply them in our language. Same word in Acts 18.5 is translated this way, in the Old King James, it says, And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit. Was pressed is the same root word in the Greek. And so, was pressed. It talks about being devoted, being motivated in the Spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And so, I hope you get an understanding. Uh, all this is all about understanding what he means when he says, The love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ the love of Christ compels me. It is my motive. It's what holds me together. It's what presses me on. So Paul's language in our text could be taken a couple of different ways. Have you thought about that? When he says the love of Christ controls or compels me, is he talking about, see, this is, I'm studying, I'm going to ask this question. Is he talking about the love of Christ being Christ's love for me or the love of Christ meaning my love for Christ? Which is it? Well, it's both. And even in the Greek grammar, you can translate that to either be the objective genitive or subjective genitive. So that means nothing except it could, it could mean both. And I think it does mean both. So because here's the thing, that I only love him. Why? What's the reason for my love? Why can't I love him? So that's the question. Christ's love for him or his love for Christ? Christ's love for me or my love for him? And it is both. Because the only reason I can love him is, look at that, because he first loved me. 
He actually loved me before I was born. Now, we're going to cover several verses. I've been reminded that I've gotten really lazy about putting notes and things like in the bulletin and on our YouVersion app. And um, if we were to do it right, we actually have the ability to stream through our website instead of on Facebook and actually have interactive pop-up notes. But that's a little bit of work, and I'm not getting even more important work done, so... You're going to have to make your own notes, okay? So I'm going to mention some things. I want you to be able to to not just hear this. I want you to be able to apply it to your life. I want you to meditate on it later. I want you to write down some of these verses because we're going to pop them up and move up on this fast, okay? Are you ready? Uh, We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.10, it says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That means the covering for our sins. He loved us first. That's the only reason I can love him is because even before I was born, he knew all about me. He knew about all the horrible, wicked, ridiculous stuff that I would do and say and think. And somehow he still decided that I was worth dying for. And, and he knew your stuff too. He already loved you even before you were born. And because he first loved us, not that we loved him, but he first loved us and gave himself. So let's look at this love. Are you ready to roll? Come on. Let's get, let's get fired up here. You want to write some of these down. And we look at his love. First of all, his love is unconditional. When I look at that love that he loved me with, and I'm talking about his love for me. Uh, it is unconditional. That is, you don't have to earn or deserve. In fact, none of us can earn or deserve his love. He loves you no matter what, right? In fact, that's what he means when he says, God, so what? Loved the world. That's the whole world. That's everybody that he gave. Because this kind of love produces action. The noun produces the verb, right? And so his love for us that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That if you perish, that it's because of your own choice because God has made the choice to provide a way for you. Uh, it's unconditional. Uh, he loves you. Don't say that God doesn't love you, that you're the exception because the truth of scripture is he said that he did, but he didn't just say it. Guess what he did? He proved it, and he proved it on the cross. Okay? His love is unconditional. His love is also undeserved. Are you ready for that? It's undeserved or unearned. That's part of it. Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us. That is, he demonstrated, he showed his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't deserve it, but yet he still loved you. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. That's right. So it's unconditional. It's undeserved, but it's also unselfish. That's what the love of God is. It's unselfish as he gave himself. That's what this kind of agape love is all about. It's unselfish. And one of the, I think the New Living Translation does an excellent job of taking the thoughts that are in the verses in Philippians 2, 5 through 7 and bring them into the way that we would talk and understand it. Because he says in Philippians 2, 5, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. This is talking about when he came to earth, when he came to be born in Bethlehem. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. And verse 8 says, and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. You notice how unselfish and how that he, first of all, just leaving heaven to come to earth in the flesh. Just think about what that was, how he lowered himself. He voluntarily humbled himself and didn't just come to earth, but he came to be a servant, to serve and to do the Father's will, to carry out the plan of salvation, to save you. Yeah, and, and he died on a criminal's cross on the cross, became obedient even to death, even the death of a cross. His love is unselfish, and it's unconditional. It's undeserved, but it's also unfathomable. Say that with me, unfathomable. It's a tough one to say. It really is. Uh, you cannot even get, you can't even think through it all. It's too great. It is infinite. Paul said it this way in describing it. In 2 Corinthians 9, 15, he says, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. You can't even find words. You can't even find a thought that covers it all. It is that incredible. It is that great. It is that eternal. But it's not only that, it's also Praise God, unrestrained. Unrestrained. Are you getting this down? Am I going too fast? Do I need to slow down? Okay, it's unrestrained. That is, he does not hold back. He lavishes. He lavishes his love on us if we let him. You might say, well, I don't think I'm feeling any of that. It's because you're doing your own thing and you're focusing on yourself in this world and you're not receiving it. Okay, so it is unrestrained. He says in 1 John 3, 1, behold, behold. That means just, you know, hey, just be overwhelmed by this, all right? Why don't you? What manner of love the Father has bestowed. That word bestowed means he dumped it. He just dumps it on us, on us, that we should be called the children of God. That us sinners could be called the children of God. Just think about that. You know how blessed you are and I am today? That he has bestowed, he's poured out his love on us. It's unrestrained. Uh, and, and it is amazing and it's powerful. Uh, so it is also unparalleled. It is unparalleled. There is nothing like it in the universe. Nothing like it. You can't compare it. He goes on to say in John chapter 15, verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for one, uh, for, for lay your life down for your friends. Well, Jesus even laid down his life for those of us who really were his enemies and helped make us his friends. There's no greater love that humans could express than you give your life for someone. Well, guess what? That's what Jesus did. And it is unparalleled. There is nothing like it. No one ever loved you like Jesus loves you. That is the truth. And so it is unparalleled. It is unfathomable. It is undeserved. It is unconditional. And it is universal. <laughs> I had to make it fit. I mean, universal. Universal. <laughs> that is, that his love, he doesn't just love some people. He loves everybody, right? He loves everybody. Are you ready for this? His love is universal. Um, because he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and there are a lot more verses we could, in fact, I have more in my notes, but we just didn't have time and room for all of them. But these are just some that it says in 2 Peter 3, 19, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. You know, he's promising he's going to come back. He's going to come back 
I mean, there's coming a day. There's coming a judgment day for planet Earth, right? He's not slack. Some people are like, well, you know, we've heard that all of our lives. My grandparents heard that all their lives. <laughs> he's, not, he's not coming back. We're not going to have to answer to him. Oh, yes, we are. He says he's not slack like some people count slackness. But here's what he is. He's long-suffering toward us. Why? Why has he not already come back and judged this world? Because it says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires everyone to be saved. Now, he's not going to force anyone because then you wouldn't have a relationship. You would just like be a robot. Uh, You have to make that choice. But his desire is that everyone say yes and put their faith in his grace. That's what God's desire is. So we love him. We don't just love him because of what he's done. But guess what? Now that we're learning some stuff, we love him because of who he is. I mean, even if he hadn't done all this, once you understand who he is, and he is the God, the creator, the designer, the author, the everything, that you begin to get to the point that you love him just because of who he is. He's God. Not just because of what he's done. But what he's done has proved his love for us. He's God Almighty. May we always grow in this. We love him because of who he is. Because we can look into our past. I can look into my past. Which is filled with sin and rebellion. And know that he loved me then. Just as much. And I can look at my present right now. That I'm still got a lot of work that needs to happen in my life. But he loves me right now at this very moment. And I can look to my future and see that he's preparing a place for me. He told me. He said he's coming again. He's got all these precious promises. And I know he's going to love me forever. And the thing about it is, is we've got to understand, is that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. Because he already loves you with a perfect love. In another place in the Old Testament, he calls it an everlasting love. See, because we want to think, we want to relate things to what we know. We want to relate God's love to human love, don't we? We want to do that. We want to, we want to think he's like us. And that, you know, well, if I, if, I do, if I don't do just exactly what you want, you won't love me as much. Or maybe I can do something to get you to love me more. That's not the way it is with God. There's nothing you could ever do to get God to love you more. Because he loves you with a perfect love. Now, if that's not hard enough to understand, I got one more for you. There's nothing that you could do to cause him to love you less. I see our love doesn't work that way. He loves you just as much. Now, just like a parent and a child, you love your child. But if they do bad and go off and do horrible things, you might still love them, but they've hurt you. But you still love them, but you might not have fellowship. You may not be able to have a relationship. Now, God still loves you just as much. You may not be in fellowship with him. You may not be in relationship with him. But the fact is, as long as you're like, he, he, he's promised that he'll never leave you or forsake you, even though you leave him and forsake him. And he loves you with an undying love. Are you thinking about that? Does that blow your mind? That's the kind of love he loves us with. That's the kind of love that he wants to give us. And so that's his love for me. But then my love for him, which is also implied in that verse, right? The love of Christ controls me. It's not just his love for me, which is all of this that we've described and more. But my love for him is just my response. It is my response to him loving me. My love for him is my response of him loving me. That's what it is. 
It's not something that I've got to just, boy, I've got to make myself love God more. What I need to do is get to know Him more and experience more of Him, and then His love fills me up, and then it's His love that returns right back to Him. It is a response. It is my response to how He loves me. So if you're having trouble loving God, it's probably because you're not experiencing who He is and knowing Him and experiencing His love. It is our ultimate response. In fact, there in those verses, Matthew 22, 37, it's where Jesus said, ask what the greatest commandment says, you shall love the Lord your, here's the greatest commandment of all, to love, this is it, that you love God. It's your response to his love, that you love God with all your heart. You know this verse, that's why I didn't put it up there. You love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, one of the other writers as all your strength. This is why Christ came. This is why he has given you a free will. This is why he created, that's part of him creating us in his own image. So that you may respond out of love to him. You can't force somebody to respond out of love. But because he created us in his image, he wants you to respond out of love for him. And all that we do, especially in the church, needs to be motivated out of that love. So our love for him should be our first and ultimate response. But it's not just my ultimate response. It is also my utmost motivation. It is. It is what motivates me. It is what controls me. It should be what, co- what compels me. It should be why we go to worship on Sunday. It's why we go to the trouble to gather. It's, it should be why we want to get involved in Bible study. I love him, and I want more of this. I'm telling you what, once you get a good taste of the love of God, I guarantee you can't get enough, and you'll never get all of it, because I think throughout all eternity, we're going to continue to experience vast depths of his love that we knew not of. It will will never get to the end of it. It will go on forever. It'll never get old. It'll never get boring. It'll never get commonplace. We're going to learn throughout forever how deeply he loves us. And we're going to experience it. And that should motivate us even right now. Because it should be why. That should be why I serve. That should be why I witness. That should be why I preach. And I do understand this. God is going to judge me on my motives. Because you can do something that looks good, but you might have bad motives, and so it cancels out. I mean, as far as God's concerned, he's not looking at just the surface. He's looking at the heart, why we do what we do. So praying then that we can understand the question is, do I love him like I should? Then if I do, what I will desire will be that which glorifies him and exalts him instead of that which promotes me. Yeah. Amen? Because, you know, it's hard for us to get the me out of the way. That's part of what he's talking about, that, you know, that he died for all, all died, I died to self, and that those who live are living in him and through him, you know, the me. Because a lot of the stuff we do, even the good stuff, the stuff for God, we, we really do it to promote ourselves more than to glorify and exalt him and love him. We've got to be careful with that. I want us to constantly look at my motives in my heart and to make sure it's coming out of that place of love instead of something else. So I have to ask myself then, am I motivated? And you know, it seems like as a pastor, I spend a lot of my time just trying to motivate myself and all of you guys just to do things that we, know we ought to already be doing, right? That, I mean, it seems like that. Uh, but, but here's what God convicts me of, is that if I'm not motivated... 
If I'm just not motivated to love Him, if I'm not motivated to serve Him, if I'm not motivated to please Him, then it could not, it might not be a motivation problem. It's actually a love problem. There's something, there's something broken in my love relationship with Him of knowing Him and loving Him and letting His love permeate my life and flow back to Him. There's a, maybe, maybe I don't love Him and I'm, maybe I'm not experiencing and allowing myself to experience his love like I want to. Maybe I'm not willing to die to myself and live unto him like I should. So that could be the problem. Uh, so I want to make sure I have the right motivation. And the key to this, you know what the key to it is? So how, how can we do this? Does the Bible give us a key to this? Oh, yes, it does. It does. It does. So the key to fulfilling God's will in your life, and, and this is the whole thing. It comes, I want to tell you, the key. How many of us want to fulfill God's will for our life? That's like the greatest thing, yeah. What is it? What is God's greatest goal for us? Why? Well, the question is, do you love him? Now, think about this. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And he meets with the disciples the last time. And they're in Galilee. And he's standing on the shore, and he gathers them in, you know, and they even eat fish. Isn't that awesome? The resurrected Jesus in his perfect resurrected body ate fish. I don't know. I get a blessing out of that. <laughs> All right. Well, you remember one of them probably had his head low. You remember him? Simon Peter. What had he done shortly before that? He'd actually denied that he even knew Jesus. Jesus told him, what is it? No, I'm going to die for you. No, you're not. And he failed. And I think he feels substandard. Do you remember the question Jesus asked him there at the end of the book of John? He didn't say, now, Peter, before I go, have you learned your lesson? <laughs> I mean, Peter, are you going to behave yourself? Are you going to watch what you say and not make promises with your mouth that you can't fulfill with the rest of yourself? No, he didn't ask him any of that. What did he ask him? One question. Yes, do you love me? Do you love me? That's it. That's the key right there to fulfilling God's will in through your life. All right? So why has God left you here? If you've already received his love and you love him, why don't he just take you to heaven? Well, it's because, uh, he, he, why is, has he left you here to get you ready for heaven? No, I want to tell you, once you're saved, you're ready for heaven. The reason why God has left you here and me here is this. The highest purpose that we all have is right there, to glorify him. That's the highest thing that I can do in my life. When I stand before God, we're going to be blessed. And it seems like there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament that we are going to be, you know, those who are saved, we're going to be blessed. We're actually going to be rewarded based on how much our life has glorified him. Uh, so it says the day will try, you know, it, it, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble that we've built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And um, so here's what I realize is that I feel like anything that's come through my life that doesn't glorify him is just pretty much, you know, it's going to be gone one day. The only thing that's going to carry through into eternity is what has come through my life that has glorified him. That's really the only thing that, that lasts, right? All the rest of it's going to be gone. All right, so to glorify him. How do I glorify him? So how do I do that, Lord? I want to glorify you. How do I do that? Just by showing up on Sunday? Well, that helps, but how do I? Well, as you see up there, it says bearing fruit. Where do I get that? John 15. He tells us, John 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified. How is he glorified, Jesus? He says that you bear much 
fruit. And he's talking about what comes out of our life. So what comes out of my life? It's not I'm not saved based on works, but God is glorified by what comes out of my life. He says, so you'll be my disciples. Okay, all right. So he's glorified that I bear fruit. How do I bear fruit? How do I do that? Well, he's already told us. Let's back up, all right. John 15, verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me, Jesus said. Uh, Next verse, he says in verse 5, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. There it is. For without me, you can do nothing. You catch that? Nothing. All right. So how do I bear fruit? By abiding in him. That abiding in him, just like the branch abides in the vine. I'm connected to him. How do I do that? By faith. That's me having faith. That's how you receive the love of God, by trusting him, abiding in him. He's always talking about that, about faith, about, and it's about trusting, relying, depending, totally submitting to him. So The branch cannot bear fruit. A branch can't be cut off from the vine and go out and keep bearing fruit. It will die. So how do I become fruitful? By staying connected, by trusting and walking by faith in Jesus Christ. And so when that happens, you know what? I'm just a branch, but the vine, oh my goodness, now the life of the, of the vine flows through me just like the sap does in a real vine. The Holy Spirit of God is present in me. And listen, it's not me just trying real hard to try to bear my fruit for Jesus. It is Jesus who is the vine bearing his own fruit through me. What I have to do is just stay connected Walking by faith, abiding in him. That's what he said. It's going to have an effect on my life when I do that. It's going to. It's going to have a a powerful effect. So how do we do that? So how do we abide in him? By trusting him, walking by faith. But because I trust him, you know, it's not just a said faith. Because I trust him, it produces action in my life, does it not? If it's real trust, if it's real faith. It's not that I'm working to try to earn something. It's I trust him. And because I trust him, it produces action. And 1 John 3, 24 says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. So it's not just talk. It's not just me saying it. But because I really trust in him, I really want to do and to, to live in a way that pleases him. So he says, He who keeps his commandments abides in him. And he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us because the Holy Spirit. Paul mentioned that also in this chapter. So because I want to obey him, I abide in his will. By obe- How do I obey him? Abide in him. Because I abide in him, I want to obey him. And when I obey him, I know I'm still abiding in him. So in order to obey him, I've got to abide in him. And because I'm abiding in him, I want to obey him. And obeying him causes me to continue to abide in him. Because otherwise I'm saying I am, but I'm not, and I'm doing my own thing. What causes me to even do that? To keep his commandments. John 14, 15. We're right back to love. If you love me, keep my commandments. I'm not obeying him and wanting to abide in him because I've got to earn something or anything like that. It's because that love flowing into me and back out. The highest motive. To keep his commandments, which is evidence that we're abiding in him. 
which is what he said we must do to bear fruit, which is what we must do to glorify him, which is our highest purpose. It comes right back to this. This is the key, folks. This is the key that's missing. It's powerful, and it's love. This is the thing that hinges it all together. You know, there used to be an old saying. It says, "Is an old saying in the old days, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the country was lost. And all for the loss of one horseshoe nail. You see, one thing missing it's that. And probably may, it could be, you know, that God just wants us to let him love us. Now, love is part of the motivation. He's already mentioned in verse 11 that because we have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because there's this part of God. God is just and God is holy. And we are going to have to give an account to him. But God is also love. And so those things are in balance. You understand that. But think of how God will use your fruit. You know, it's been said, you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can't count the number of apples in one seed. Right? So this is how God wants to work. And I pray that even when we're, if time goes on and you and I, we grow old or we, we, we pass away, that from the fruit that God produces, he produces, we just bear it. He produces it, we bear it through our lives that it's going to keep going in our children, our grandchildren, people that we've met, people we've been around. You don't even have any idea of fruit that he may be harvesting to his glory right now that came as a result of things that God did through your life years ago or what will happen in the future. Fruitfulness. And so let God use you like this because you love him, because he first loved you and died for you. You can now love him in return. You can't really love him until you receive his love. His love is the only source of true love in the whole universe. That it might flow into you, through you, and then fill your life up and flow back to him. And produce fruit in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you.